Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Well, okay. So there's no two ways to uh, to talk about this. There's no two ways about this, guys. Uh, vaccines are currently radioactive. Um, not, not literally. Uh, so please, nobody take that soundbite and use it to create a uh, propaganda <laughs> campaign uh, about mm-hmm. us being anti-vax or something because I am seriously very paranoid. I have been waiting for that to happen, for that other shoe to drop uh since we started doing this and randomly putting our voices out into the world for people to listen to (laughs) right (laughs) so i am i'm like i'm waiting for the the evil cut the evil fireside breakdowns cut where people just make horrible propaganda campaigns against us yeah no we uh we probably gotta be a little bit more popular first cruel but accurate i know Um, i know regardless regardless um, we are we we are going to wade into the inexplicably contentious world of vaccines to discuss one very very small aspect of them today, and that is mandates, vaccine mandates. Yeah, vaccine mandates. If you ask some people, these mandates are just an understandable step to keep our society from falling apart due to mass die-offs caused by unchecked, preventable diseases running rampant through our streets. Being required to partake of certain measures to participate in modern society is something that we all accept and do on a daily basis. You have to get a license to drive a car. You have to go to school to practice medicine. And you have to make sure that you're not going to kill somebody's gram-gram because you caught the Rona and took up a hospital bed that could have been used to treat gram-gram's heart condition. Of course, if you ask others, vaccine mandates are fascism and literally something Nazis would do. Um, Basically, they're a sign of an unscrupulous government uh, bent on amassing power and control over a helpless populace too unenlightened or unwilling to rise up against tyranny. The very definition of governmental overreach and imposing rules and regulations to control your body, forcing all of us to be guinea pigs for the government's experiments. Or something 
along those lines somewhere in there. Frankly, this is one of those things where it's difficult to untangle what is an honest and earnestly held belief and what is satire or hyperbole, especially for me, because lately conspiratorial thinking seems to be sort of the norm in public discourse. It's like the order of the, the, the day. Um, though to be clear, it doesn't look like the evidence indicates that conspiracy theories are any more prevalent today than they were in like 1930. It's just different. There's just a lot of them. Right. They're, they're a lot louder than they were. Um, so what do, what do we mean by that? Well, like we've mentioned a few times, several episodes now, social media and really the internet in general is a double-edged sword that has both unified the globe and allowed for more widespread fracturing of society into tribalistic camps, which, when you put it together, sounds a bit contradictory. Yeah, but we can use a mini breakdown to, to, to illustrate that. So we'll talk about crime specifically for a little bit, uh, just to illustrate the point. So over the years, communication scholars, the, the people who study the transmission of information and how it impacts society, they've been compiling evidence that seems to support that news media presents a distorted representation of the world regarding crime and race. And consumption of these distorted images can reinforce stereotypical notions of various racial groups. So you'll be unsurprised to learn that this (laughs) disproportionately impacts black Americans. Right. And then these effects are only intensified by the internet generally and social media very specifically. The internet gives all of us the ability to curate our sources according to our own tastes and beliefs, like we discussed in last week's episode on filter bubbles in social media. Whether we wanted it or not, we've stepped into a war on our own perception of the world. Every action that we take online has the potential to change the information that we get from our Google searches, or what stories come up on our feeds, or even the products that are advertised to us. And this happens completely unconsciously. Right. Users can and will shape their online consumption to conform to their stereotypes. This tailored coverage, that coverage will inform how they further curate what they consume. Um, And it could potentially force average users into increasingly biased content uh, as they grow more resistant to opposing viewpoints. In one study... As people who sought out like internet only sources for news, um, so the sort of like Huff Post, the that's only online, right? Mm-hmm. Huffington Post, um, Mother Jones, Breitbart, right? Uh, just all of these like online only news outlets. Uh, people who sought that out and and only trusted that for their news reported more racism than those who consumed more mainstream content um your standard when you think of news cnn fox msnbc that that sort of thing got the hiccups (laughs) okay and we're back um those who had strong trust in these internet only sites um with uh, extreme views specifically we'll say like like breitbart Um, They also expressed more racial hostility compared to those who sought out more mainstream news sources online. So if you only got your news from an online source, you thought or you you see and report racism more frequently. And if your online source is 
particularly extreme in its content, uh, you yourself express more uh, racist views, more extreme racial hostility. Important caveat there is that this information, those studies, um, they, they're, they're very small. And it shouldn't be used to make factual assertions or assumptions about how things definitively are. Mm-hmm. Um, it just they serve to indicate the way things might be. It, it supports a hypothesis, but more research, more study needs to be done to take these hypotheses and turn them into an actual theory, an actual working theory. It just looks like what we know based on these small studies is that consuming extreme content makes you more extreme, which right. seems pretty logical to me that feels like that holds water yeah and then when we bring in social media that allows people to repost and magnify stories that are interesting to them or more realistically that conform to their own preconceived ideas of what is true in the world and how things work so when people share these stories on social media their circle the people who interact with the posts that they share is more likely to believe that story is accurate and factual because of who it came from. According to a study from the Media Insight Project, how much people trust any given content is influenced less by who created the original post and more by who shared it. If you came across a post from Fireside Breakdowns because you were Googling a topic that we did an episode on, you'd be less likely to take what we wrote as true, despite all of our citations and the sources that we include in our episodes, than if you came across that same post shared by your good friend on the PTA. Right. And to take it one step further, the better your relationship with the person sharing the given story, the more likely you are to believe it. So if you see a story shared by your new hairstylist, you know, that you added to make sure you knew when she was running a special or to stay in touch because she was moving, whatever, right? It might not have a large impact on your perceptions. You might be like, oh, interesting, but you might not carry it with you. That same story shared by your own best friend, somebody that you chose and you've cultivated a relationship with, that story will carry much more weight and be far more likely to leave a lasting impression. This means that our filter bubble extends beyond the various behaviors our browser has learned or that Instagram or Facebook has learned um, and to the, the people we choose to surround ourselves with to the point that our trust in various organizations and articles becomes entrenched not only by our own beliefs and online behaviors, but also by the trust of those around us. In turn, we also influence the beliefs of those around us, meaning that our online communities especially, but our real-life communities as well, tend to grow and develop beliefs together because we reinforce each other. Now, combine that with the fact that social media doesn't always facilitate real conversation, despite that being one of its intended purposes. If people perceive that their opinion or thought goes against the audience that they're interacting with, they're more likely to just keep their opinion to themselves. So even if a person were inclined to seek out viewpoints that contradicted their own beliefs, which again is very hard to do, even when you're trying to do it consciously, if they found an article to be compelling or interesting, they'd be unlikely to share that information with their social group if their social group generally disagreed with the information contained within that article. 
So all of this is to reinforce the idea that we have created an online environment that makes it very difficult to actually foster diversity in the information diet of the average mm -hmm. user. Even those of us like Robin and I that, that like to believe that we have healthy habits, <laughs> right, right, for how we take in and consume news, we're limited by these factors. We try to stay aware and cognizant of it, but we're also human. <laughs> and, and that mm -hmm. kind of sets the stage for this conversation for vaccine mandates because that is part of the reason that we're even having a debate about it to begin with. Right. And that's part of the reason that we've been having these debates for almost 250 years now. Yep. Fun fact. One time when I was younger, fun story time, when I was younger, I was asked to uh, say grace at the Thanksgiving meal. And I wanted to give thanks for the long and prosperous history of the country that allowed us to, to exist in the lives that we had. And so I definitely, in the middle of my prayer, in front of family and friends from literally across the nation, was like, thank you, God, for the past 150 years in America that have been <laughs> so good. You know, like we were just founded 150 years ago. Uh, my quick maths really failed me in the middle yeah. of that, that prayer. And also my general knowledge of history. <laughs> but right. I was like... I was like, let's see, 1775, uh, yeah, 18, uh, yeah, 19, yeah, that's about 150 years, no yeah. big deal. Totes. Yeah, no, true story. True story. There is a reason that my job involves words, not maths. Yeah, 100%. I write down all math problems now, all math problems. We don't uh -huh. do math in our head. Nope. We do not write it nope. all down. Yeah. Anyway, point being. And actually, we'll discover a little bit later that I overgeneralized and we probably should be talking about 300 years of debate over vaccine mandates, but we'll we'll get there when we hit the Wayback Machine. Safe to say, it's been going on a long time. A long time. we're getting at. Um, but the point being that right now, part of the reason that we are having this, this argument, part of the reason that it is so controversial right now is because we have been told it's controversial. Yeah. And that we should be upset about this. And then people are sharing that because they believe it because it was said by somebody that they trust for whatever reason. And it sort of spirals from there. And, and on the opposite side of the, the fence, people are like, no, we don't have to worry about it. It's vaccines. It's science. You should trust this. And you're, you are unreasonable if you do not. And right. therefore, we're going to call you dumb. And that's not okay. Frankly, if okay. you're somebody who has questions about vaccines, that is it is that is that's fine. We're not here to cast shade because you question these things. No, that's the opposite of dumb. Asking yeah. questions is the opposite of dumb. But make sure that you get your information from reliable sources and trained exactly. professionals whose job it is to give you and provide that information. Right. And not from Gwyneth Paltrow. Please. Mm. Just maybe don't ever take any advice from Gwyneth Paltrow, who said that women should never lift more than five pounds with one arm because we might get bulky. Never. That's so wildly insulting. <laughs> I'm like, at that point in time, I had, well, both of my children came out more than five pounds. Yeah. Which is... <laughs> point. <laughs> point. 
Well, I'd venture a guess that hers did also, but maybe she didn't have to look at them. Have I don't kids? know. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, good for her. But like, been- also maybe stop selling jade eggs to shove up into your hoo ha, <laughs> uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, because that's not. <laughs> it's not super cool. It sounds very oh. problematic in a lot of ways. Is what I'm getting it's, to. Yeah. And maybe we shouldn't take any sort of health or medical advice from somebody whose company is called Goop. Oh, God. That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at. Uh, no, Gwyneth Paltrow did not start vaccine hesitancy and questioning. Not even no. close. No. But she is. But we probably should spend some time really at some bad. point talking about how we determine the trustworthiness of a source. Like not yeah. us individually, but like as a society – how we've gotten to a point where people whose job it is to pretend to be other people on a big screen carry more authority and weight than actual scientists. Right. And yeah, the death of professionalism, uh, the death of expertise rather, uh, is something that is, that is incredibly frustrating to me because it's this phenomenon where the average everyday Joe, Joe, the plumber, if you remember that, Excuse me. I don't know where these hiccups are coming from. If you remember Joe the Plumber and that whole thing during what right. was that the 2012 campaign? Or 2000? Yeah, I think yeah, it may have been 2016. I think it might have been 16. Yeah. Anyway, that whole guy where the opinion of Joe the Plumber suddenly became the 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 hook upon which people were basing their entire campaign, right? Their entire platform. And he was literally a plumber. And no offense to Joe the plumber. I'm glad you're a plumber. We need plumbers. I love plumbers. They make yeah. my life much better and happier. My brother does plumbing. Um, but maybe your opinion on, I can't remember what he was, what the big deal about. I feel like it was economics or something. It was, it was either that or a, it was some sort of foreign policy. I'll have to go back and look it up. It was not his area of expertise. He was right. not trying to give the, the potential president advice on how best to run a drain line out of this house or something like that. So maybe we should stop valuing his opinion as the final word. Exactly. Or, the death of expertise. I feel like that's that's a solid one. Yeah, We're that could be a whole tackle topic. That. I, uh, yeah. There's, we've, uh, Robin and I have several people on our mutual Facebook feeds who <laughs> fancy themselves smarter than the experts, and it is. Uh-huh. It's brilliant infuriating why are you why are you questioning dr fauci i know what you do for a living i know what you do for a living it's not virology it's it's taking pictures you take you you take pictures you take pictures stop with a camera you're not a virologist making a fool Mm -hmm. yourself anyway wildly off track point being (laughs) these all of these sorts of uh questions all of these uh environments where people are worried or uh, sharing information that that's that drives mistrust in something like vaccines but also several other things it is part of the results of of our internet our social media environment i just wanted to drive that home because i don't want anybody to think that one having these questions makes you somehow uh, silly or that we think you're silly for doing that. Um, we're all influenced by the people around us and what they believe. 
So if you have questions, again, not a bad, not a bad thing. Just trust your doctors when you talk about them. Medical doctors, please, ones that have gone to medical school. Right. And it, it's like, it's, if you have questions and you want help finding real answers, true answers based on science and research, um, I can guarantee you there's somebody in your life who knows how to do that. Please reach out to them and ask them for help in doing that because we can say something like trust your doctors, but then, um, you know, confirmation bias and uh, recency bias will bring us back to a place where somebody trusted their doctor and their doctor made a mistake. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like, doctors aren't infallible either. Humans aren't infallible. Sometimes we get things wrong. There have been times when things that were parts of conspiracy theories were true, right? Like, we have to acknowledge all of this and do our best to learn how to find true answers. And that's that's the whole purpose of this podcast, right, is we're trying to share with you our process for finding true answers. And I feel like every week we come to you with an answer that says, well, the truth is somewhere in the middle. It does feel like that. And because it I generally is somewhere too. in the middle. Right. Yeah. You know, you most people who are spinning something, they're not spinning a complete fabrication. There are some recent examples that I can think of that are right. spinning absolute complete fabrications, but right. by and large, and, most and of the those time, are usually pretty easy to poke holes in. Yeah, you know the if most want, basic research. If you do it, makes it very easy to poke yeah. holes in those complete fabrications. But and if you're willing to have your beliefs challenged and yeah. to have those fabrications poked holes, poked full of holes, that's right. a whole other topic. We're supposed to be talking about vaccines. This is my, I think my third attempt. I think this is my third attempt to get us back on topic. (laughs) We digress. What is going on? Why are people mad? Why are we talking about vaccine mandates? Mandates. 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 Yes. It feels like we've been talking about nothing but vaccines for the past two years. But about a month ago, the Biden administration issued a couple of different COVID-19 vaccine policies. Notice, we did not say mandates. We said policies. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, better known to most of us as OSHA, announced the details of a requirement for employers with 100 or more employees to ensure that each of their workers was fully vaccinated or tests for COVID-19 on at least a weekly basis. It also required that employers provide paid time for employees to get vaccinated Ensure that all unvaccinated workers wear a face mask in the workplace because, yes, face masks work. We talked about it in season one. This rule would apply to 84 million employees across America. The second arm of this policy would require healthcare workers at facilities participating in Medicare and Medicaid to be fully vaccinated. This would cover an additional 17 million workers. And these are in addition to the previous requirements for federal employees and federal contractors to be fully vaccinated. Employees falling into any of these categories would have until January 4th, 2022, to receive a second dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or the single Johnson & Johnson shot. And due to the Federal Supremacy Clause, which is Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the U.S. Constitution, we've talked about that one before, (laughs) as long as the rules and regulations being issued, as long as these policies are made pursuant to a valid congressional delegation of authority, 
They preempt any inconsistent state and local laws, including laws that ban or limit an employer's authority to require vaccination, masks, or testing. Right. Just over a week after the announcement, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit temporarily blocked the OSHA portion of the mandate. That's the part that it covered employers with more than 100 employees. The court ordered that no steps could be taken to implement or enforce the mandate until further court order. Currently, the case is before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Right. And just there seems to be a uh, probably uh, not not mistaken, but mistakenly informed uh, belief that that has that that part of the policy has been stricken down. Um, But it's it hasn't. It's just in review. Um, Mm -hmm. The fifth court put the ban on the fifth court then a fifth court on appeal then upheld the earlier decision for the temporary ban Uh, but there were several lawsuits going on they've all actually been consolidated now under the sixth court and uh, the sixth court will be the one who decides that ultimately it's going to it's i can almost promise you going to end up in front of the supreme court right um, which will be an interesting development yeah but this this timeline this week on Wednesday, which was the eighth, uh, the U.S. Senate voted fifty two forty eight to block the mandates, or at least that's what the headlines all say. First, I just want to say something. We're going to say mandate a lot. None of these are really mandates. They're yeah, they're not. You're not being forced to actually take the shot, even if these do come into effect. Nobody is forcing you to take the shot. There are other options available. Right. Mm -hmm. You can take your you can take a test and wear a mask. It's inconvenient, but that that's the price of not doing the shot. That doesn't make it a mandate. Nobody's holding a gun to your head. Right. All right. Anyway. That said, we're probably going to say mandate a lot just because that's the verbiage that's being used around these. We. Yeah. Just we we really dislike using that. It's just hard to (laughs) to work it out when that's what everybody's saying and that's what you want to default to. Yeah. And it's good for anyway, SEO. Yeah. It's true. That's all we care about. That, yeah. that search search engine optimization. We got to get popular enough that your wildest dreams the about getting... Nightmares. Wildest nightmares, Cut really. together. Yeah. Anyways. 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 The Senate voted to block, quote unquote, these mandates. They didn't actually block them. They agreed, the Senate agreed to a piece of legislation that could potentially block the mandates. The federal government can't issue mandates or regulations that are expressly against the law, but Congress has to pass the law first in order to actually block these things. And contrary to the headlines you might have read about this, the Senate passing this legislation did not single-handedly end the possibility of these policies being enacted. Let's go back to Schoolhouse Rock and think about how does a bill become a law? If you don't recall, I shall provide a refresher now. Although this is not my, I'm not citing Schoolhouse Rock, but it is a great, great, great episode. So watch it and uh, how a bill becomes a law. If you haven't seen it, watch it, Google it. It's or watch it on YouTube. It's like five minutes very catchy song that's an enchanting five minutes is what it is really it is anywho the legislation this block it is like any other 
So now that the Senate has passed it, the bill goes to the House, who will also have to pass it. They will have to authorize it before it would then go to President Biden, and he would have to sign it into law. But even though the House of Representatives is closely divided, it isn't quite as evenly split as the Senate. And it is unlikely, though it is not impossible, that it will not make it through the House. And even if it does make it through the House, President Biden has said he's, he would veto the legislation, which is part of his executive power. He right. can just say, no, this is a bad law. I'm not going to sign this into effect, which would mean that it would then return to Congress and they would have the opportunity to pass it without presidential approval. However, mm -hmm. in order to do so, it would have to get a two-thirds majority vote, a two-thirds majority vote in both the House and the Senate to pass into law. And that just simply isn't happening with the current Congress. It's not. It's not going to happen. In my own opinion, this is opinion zone right now, the Senate's passage of this bill that will ultimately or almost certainly not pass, um, it's a hollow victory being spun to disguise simple obstruction and dangerous science denialism as a victory for small town Main Street USA, when in reality, it's just gambling with the health and well-being of the very people that these senators are supposed to protect. Exactly. And represent. Yes, absolutely. It's it is again like we we talk sometimes about things being performative, right? This is performative policy. Every person involved in the creation of this legislation and its passing knows and understands that ultimately it is not going to be it is, it is unlikely to be enacted. Yeah. But what they can do then is they can go to their constituents and say, see, I fought for you. I did this thing. We stood up. We made an effort. Rather than actually putting the time and the work to um, you know, reach across the aisle and use science and actual evidence to create laws that will benefit most of society, not just um, make the people that they represent with extreme views feel good about their own views. Yeah. We're grandstanding yeah. at this point. And uh, that's just not effective when we're trying to be nimble and fight a pandemic. Right. The virus doesn't really care about politics. It's going to just continue to infect and multiply and kill people. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it, the reason that they're able to do this kind of stuff is because the battle over these mandates, these policies, isn't just happening in Congress and at the federal level. Debates and arguments and lawsuits about mandates and requirements are taking place at smaller scales across the country, despite the fact that they're largely unsuccessful. It's happening in Missouri right now. I got an email from my kid's school district the other day saying, hey, we know that the Missouri attorney general has ordered everybody in the state of Missouri to immediately stop enforcing mask mandates, quarantine policies and all of that kind of stuff because of a case that came out of um, one of our circuit courts here that could at some point have the implication that it makes these mandates unlawful. However, that case is also in review. It's also still in process. What the Missouri Attorney General did is take this one court decision and issue a blanket statement that all across the state we have to stop enforcing these things, including in our schools. So 
our school district, which had intended to review its mask mandate and quarantine policy in at the beginning of, of January anyway, sent out an email that said, hey, by the way, this is what we were planning to do. And uh, in far more diplomatic terms, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to quit making our students wear masks for the last nine days of the semester just because um, this gentleman says that we have to. So these are things that are happening at a local level as well. There is a huge deal of contention over the idea of these vaccine mandates, policies, and what they mean for each and every one of us. At its core, this contention is a civil liberties issue. Opponents of these mandates are arguing that they infringe upon our bodily autonomy and our bodily integrity, which are fundamental rights that we all have. And let's be honest, if there's one thing that Americans are good at, it's advocating for our fundamental rights. Yeah. For worse. Sometimes we're actually really bad at that, but we think we're being good at it because we think we know what we're advocating for. Right. Exactly. We think we think we we do. Um, I know we sometimes talk about it in jest, right? We poke fun at American exceptionalism and how quick we are as a society to throw our hands up and yell foul when we think someone's trying to tell us what to do. Uh, even sometimes before we consider what it is that they're asking us to do. Hmm. But in reality, that is likely one of the characteristics that has kept America moving in a largely positive direction for so long. Our knee-jerk reaction to sweeping policy is very often, absolutely not. (laughs) So this fight against COVID vaccine policy is just the latest in a long line of similar reactions as America has faced new diseases and the science of vaccination has progressed So since we're essentially becoming a history podcast now, and I'm definitely not mad about that, (laughs) let's take a rewind through some of the controversy around vaccine policy in our past, starting with some vaccine-motivated terrorism and including proof that maybe vaccine mandates are one of the most patriotic policy decisions that we can actually make. Wait, did you just say vaccine terrorism? Yeah. Mm Vaccine-motivated terrorism. Nothing new under the sun, my friend. So here's that story. One November day in 1721, a Boston reverend named Cotton Mather, who was famous or infamous for a lot of various reasons, found himself the target of some vaccine-motivated terrorism. A small bomb came flying in through his window, but, and probably thanks to some 1721 technology, didn't actually detonate. The note that Mather found attached to that device read, Cotton Mather, you dog, damn you, I'll inoculate you with this, with a pox to you. Basically, you know, take this, you vaccine guy. And screw you and the horse you rode in on. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, that's wild. Mather was an active proponent of a new inoculation against smallpox, um, though... It was, by the time he was a proponent of it, it was already common in other parts of the world. The concept was just becoming a, a topic of conversation uh, in the colonies and in England. Uh, Mather is largely credited with introducing inoculation to the colonies, and he worked hard to promote the idea. He learned about this process from his West African slave, Onesimus, um, who told Mather, Mather, 
that he had undergone the operation which had given something of smallpox and would forever preserve him from it, adding that this was often used in West Africa. In 1721, Boston was the center of one of the most deadly smallpox, smallpox epidemics to ever hit colonial America, and its devastation was the catalyst for the first major application of preventative inoculation against the disease in the colonies. But it was also the first time that we experienced the widespread mistrust and misunderstanding of vaccination procedures and policies that we still see today. When Mather reached out to the medical community in Boston to promote his idea for inoculation, one physician was receptive to the idea, but the others, including Dr. William Douglas, one of the only local physicians who actually held a medical degree, openly hostile to the idea. Their arguments against the inoculation process were varied, but mostly revolved around two objections. A, that inoculation violated divine law because it could inflict harm on innocent people, or by attempting to counter God's will for whether someone lives or dies. Okay, sure. And two, that the science for inoculation was untested and seemingly based on folklore. Douglas especially feared that unchecked inoculation would quickly spread the disease throughout the city. And yeah, that one makes sense. At this point, it's 1721. The inoculation process essentially involved creating a small open wound and then, well, rubbing a tiny amount of gunk from a smallpox sore into it. Yeah. It, it made logical sense that this could be a very, very bad idea. Look. Still, (laughs) Mather and a physician named Boylston uh, persisted, which Boyle, what an appropriate name. Um, (laughs) They persisted. And once the epidemic began to subside, the data they had collected revealed that the inoculation procedure had been surprisingly effective. Boylston personally inoculated 287 people and recorded that only 2% of those people who had received the inoculation, who had contracted the disease, died, compared to the 14.8% overall mortality rate of those who contracted the disease without inoculation. Right. Jumping ahead just a little bit. The setting. American Revolutionary War, 1777. George Washington enters stage left. The Continental Army's major military campaigns were stalling and even failing as smallpox outbreaks swept through their camps. The British opponents were largely immune to to the disease because of childhood exposure or inoculation procedures. And this imbalance meant that the British were able to keep moving even when the Continental Army was debilitated. General Washington quickly realized that this pattern would not do. So on January 6, 1777, Washington wrote to Dr. William Shippen Jr., ordering him to inoculate all of the forces that passed through Philadelphia, knowing that his order would be in direct opposition to a proclamation that was made by the Continental Congress in 1776, prohibiting inoculation for the army, largely because of those same fears that Mather and Boylston combated in Boston 55 years earlier. Hmm. On February 5th, Washington openly committed to his plan in a letter informing the Continental Congress of his intentions. 
Throughout that month, he covertly communicated to his commanding officers orders to oversee mass inoculations of their troops in the same way that the procedure had been done by Dr. Shippen's hospital in Philadelphia. And, though smallpox raged throughout the war, devastating the Native American population and slaves who had chosen to fight for the British in exchange for freedom, which is its own very problematic conversation, um, the isolated infections that sprung up among continental regulars failed to incapacitate a single regiment and allowed the Continental Army to fight effectively for the freedom of what would become America. Boom. Vaccination mandates are as essential to America as the Founding Fathers and the Constitution. Literally. Literally. This country likely would not exist as it currently does without vaccine mandates because our army couldn't have fought. Yes. Like, as I was doing research for this, there are several sources out there that give credit for success in the Revolutionary War to General Washington and his commitment to making sure that all of his troops were inoculated, uh, which I didn't say vaccinated because that's, well, it's different. It's a little different. It's a little yeah. different. In 1809, then, moving on, Massachusetts passed a law that authorized local boards of health to require smallpox vaccinations, which by this time were different than that previous gunk inoculation for people over the age of 21. Other states quickly passed similar legislation and other states also quickly began to experience that same opposition to those mandates. In 1855, Massachusetts also became the first state to mandate vaccination for school children. In 1867, the Board of Health in Urbana, Ohio, passed a law requiring citizens to get available vaccines in the event of future epidemics, which is really hilarious because I think it was at Jim Jordan. Somebody it was a, a member of the Congress tweeted uh, something along the lines of vaccine mandates are un-American and he just happens to be. Um, the representative from this district in Ohio. So somebody responded to that tweet with a photo of the article that came out in 1867 uh, from his district that basically said it is our duty to each other to, as Americans to uh, vaccinate ourselves whenever we can. It was really funny. It's beautiful, beautiful irony. I'm sure it landed um, about like a dead fish on a runway. Oh, I'm sure it did. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> incredible, but I love it. I love the tasty irony of it all. Yes. Um, the, the, the fight against these policies, they continued in force in every area where a new mandate was passed, objections, protests, and refusals followed in 1905. The challenge to these policies made its way to the Supreme court in the case of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. Now, remember that 1809 Massachusetts statute that allowed local health boards to mandate smallpox vaccination when they felt that it was important to protect public health? Well, with the Jacobson case, that policy came back into focus. In 1902, smallpox once again surged through Cambridge, Massachusetts. And the city's Board of Health issued an order that required all adults to be vaccinated in order to halt the disease. Now, in the same way that the policy currently in question didn't actually force vaccination, that mandate allowed individuals to choose not to be vaccinated. 
However, it did impose a fine of about $5, which is roughly equivalent to $150 in today's money. Hmm. A man named a man named Henning Jacobson refused vaccination, asserting that he and his son had experienced bad reactions to previous vaccinations. The Massachusetts policy did not take into consideration previous adverse reactions, noting that since they were not forcing vaccinations, essentially the worst that could happen is that a person would have to pay the fine. I mean, let's not take into consideration whether or not a person could afford the fine, which is the way America does laws pretty well. Right. Uh, But whatever. Anyway, Jacobson was fined and appealed the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, who had absolutely zero problem upholding the state policy. After all, the Constitution confirmed that states retain all the sovereign authority not ceded to the national government. Previous Supreme Court decisions in the 1800s had confirmed that states had the power to pass laws that promote the health, peace, morals, education, and good order of the people. The real question at hand was whether or not the state had overstepped its authority and entered the sphere of personal liberty protected by the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Did individuals have the right to refuse vaccination? Justice Harlan answered that question by noting that liberty is not, quote, an absolute right in each person to be, at all times, and in all circumstances, wholly free from restraint. He said, there is, of course, a sphere within which the individual may assert the supremacy of his own will and rightfully dispute the authority of any human government, especially of any free government existing under a written constitution. But it is equally true that in every well-ordered society charged with the duty of conserving the safety of its members, the rights of the individual in respect of his liberty may at times, under the pressure of great dangers, be subjected to such restraint, lo, be enforced by reasonable regulation as the safety of the general public may demand. In other words, at times, the interpretation of individual liberty has to be subject to the overall greater good. That is a question that has followed the introduction and mandate of vaccination for almost every epidemic and disease in the United States, from smallpox to polio to chickenpox. And that's pretty much where we find ourselves today as we discuss mask and vaccine policies surrounding COVID-19. Except now we have to factor in a heavy dose of widespread and corporate misunderstanding because the channels for broadcasting and sharing information are open to anyone and everyone. Very specific policies that regulate compliance with COVID-19 procedures for companies that are partially governed by federal organizations or policies are presented as nationwide vaccine mandates. In reality, the conversation around these policies is much more nuanced than the grandstanding that's being done by politicians on either side of the aisle. And again, we'll say it very clearly. They both, everyone, they're all doing it. The precedent for creating and enforcing mandates that apply to the general population has always resided with the state or the city in question and will likely continue to do so. There is a long history and protection for various exemptions to vaccine policy. 
and individuals are free to get the vaccine even when it's not mandated by their local health authority. When you add to that conversation the fact that we're dealing with a disease that continues to evolve and change, and acknowledge that the science and preventative and curative medicine surrounding it will also evolve and change, it becomes very clear that none of this is clear. Our best course of action is to take a note of advice from Justice Harlan and consider whether this is one of those times when we have to put aside our stubborn pride and American gut reaction to being told what to do and consider how our actions can best contribute to the overall fight against grave dangers to those around us. At this point, all the evidence we have indicates that the vaccines currently available are safe for most people. At their best, they reduce transmission of this disease, but at a minimum, they have proven to be incredibly effective against severe disease, which means that we keep hospital beds open and reduce loss of life as we try to learn more about this disease. Yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. Like, none of our rights, none of our rights are complete and without restriction. It is a utter fabrication that people have been trying to push forever that we have a completely unrestricted society. But even the freedom of speech has some pretty significant restrictions on it mm -hmm. about what you can and cannot say and when you can and cannot say something. So let's not make the two-faced argument that because it is a a guaranteed liberty or a guaranteed right that it can never be infringed upon, that it will never be limited, but then turn around and try to limit somebody else's right. Yeah. It's like at this point, the conversation around vaccine mandates and pretty much any policy having to do with the COVID-19 pandemic has become more of an opportunity to joust over individual rights than it has been a pursuit of what is going to be the most protective for American society at large. We're too busy arguing over whether or not I can be told to do something or I can tell you to do something. Yeah. And we're not having that really important conversation of where do I need to consider my personal safety, but also consider what I can do to work for the safety of those around us. It's like we're not even stopping to consider anybody else in this. It's just about me and what do I want to do. And I feel like I feel like that's the conversation that we are supposed to be having about these mandates, yeah. about these policies, about this disease in general is not uh, not so much battling back and forth on what do the rules say about what I do and don't have to do and what does being a part of society say about what I should and shouldn't do? Yeah. Yeah. Although it is surprising to me, some people scoff at the idea of social responsibility. Yeah. That is a completely different episode. I've never understood it. But if you'd like to scoff at our episode, 
Please don't scoff. That's totally acceptable. We work really hard so. on this. Don't scoff. I'm. You are allowed to scoff. This is America. Scoffing is allowed, even when I have worked really hard so that you don't scoff, because you're not actually hurting me or infringing upon my rights. It's true. However, if you do want to scoff and you would like to share it with us and hurt us emotionally, you can do so at firesidebreakdowns.com. You got our shows there. You got our notes there. You got show notes there. Well, that's the same thing. You've got access to all of our social medias, uh, Instagram, Facebook, mainly Instagram and Facebook, um, and our Patreon, if you'd like to give us a couple bucks a month in order to fuel our coffee, tea, and other beverage late night research cram sessions before we record at 1 a.m. to get these things cranked out to you guys hot and ready every Monday, most Mondays. Can't say every Monday anymore. Also, most importantly, honestly, seriously, a link to leave a review. I'm driving this. I'm hitting it every week. It. If you haven't left us a review yet, that's all we're asking you to do. Please, rate and review. Mm -hmm. It helps other uh, knowledge-hungry individuals find our research and hopefully um, give it a listen and think that we do a pretty good job as well. Yes, or if yeah. you listen on a platform where you can't do that, you know what else would be amazing? If you shared an episode with your circle. We talked to you earlier about how much more weight your opinion on what we say carries than what we actually say and the yep. resources and the sorting sourcing that we put into every episode. So if you find this valuable, um, you can choose to leave us a review, plus also share this with other people, and that would be yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Rate, review, share. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's all we're asking. That's it. And when you do that, it'll be good news. We'll get a little ding. We'll get a little notification on our phone and it'll be like, hey, somebody was just awesome. Yeah. And we get really excited. It's true. Not going to lie. If you want to hear other good news, well, Robin's got that covered too. I do. Robin, Relevant good us. news. Currently, 200 million Americans are fully vaccinated. Ba -ba -da -ba. Da -da -da. 483 million doses of one of the three vaccines given and 60.8% of the overall population is currently fully vaccinated against COVID-19. And boosters are rolling out across the country to help us maintain protection as SARS-CoV-2 evolves and changes. Again, we are still in the learning phases of this process, and we know that there's no guarantee that what we have now will continue to be our best protection going forward. But the goodest news in all of this is that 200 million Americans have made the decision to work together against this danger as we try to learn more and protect each other from this crazy disease. That's super cool. Super cool. We got to do better, though. I want to see 75% by this time next week. Let's go. Get out Let's there. Go. Hop Share two. great articles of vaccine information with your friends. Yes. That way they believe it. You want to take us out tonight? I do. Let's or do Or this it. morning, whatever you're listening. Sure. Take us yes. out of here, Robin. All right. So we will be back with you again next week to talk about some other cool things. It could be the, uh, the demise of expertise. It could be social responsibility. It could be something new ripped from the headlines. We don't know. Actually, I think we do know. We do? Yeah. We got a note. We got a <gasps> yes. letter. We, we just got, got a letter. letter. <laughs> we just got a letter. Yep. Um, yeah, we did. 
from a listener who I think found us last week or the week before, relatively recently. And um, if you're listening, we are so happy you're here. Uh, She asked us why we don't think that the 2020 election was stolen. Why we believe that it was honest and fair. And that seems like a pretty good one to discuss on our uh, more headline-driven episodes. Yeah, I love that, actually. We might actually do that. There's there's still a lot going on with that. So we do know Mm -hmm. what we're talking to you about next week. Next Mm -hmm. week, Mm -hmm. we will be bringing you a breakdown of why it is that we believe that the 2020 election was not stolen. Thank you, Linda, for asking that question. Um, Mm -hmm. Until we come to you with that information, we encourage you all to love each other, take care of each other, and do your best to work together against this current grave danger. Mm -hmm.